Here's some of the highlights that we learned from last week. We saw that the Apostle Paul began to share his story. This is who I was. This is where God has brought me from. He began to share his story. We oftentimes, we call that his testimony. And if you're a Christian, you have a testimony. You have a story of what God has done in your life and where he brought you from. And sometimes we read books about people's stories, and it's magnificent. Oh my gosh, I used to do this, and I used to do that, and all this stuff. And many of us, we think, well, I don't really have a testimony. That guy over there does, she over here does, but I don't really have a testimony. I was just a kid who grew up in the church. Well, that's your story. That's who you were. That's where God brought you from and what God was doing in your life to bring you to the place of faith. Every one of us that is a follower of Christ, we have a story. And Paul's background, he wasn't necessarily a bad individual as far as comparisons to the rest of the world. Paul was a very religious young man. He was raised according to the strict religious background of the Pharisees. Morally, people would have looked at him and said, that guy does everything that he is supposed to do before God. Paul talked about how he grew from there, from being that young boy, he grew to be a man who was zealot for the Jewish faith. So zealous that he was even willing to put an end to the newly formed Christian faith, if need be, by killing people. That's where Paul was. That's who he was, I should say. About halfway through, or actually closer to about a third of the way through, Paul then shifts to the experience that he had with God. So he went from this is who I was to this is what happened to me. And he began to explain how one time when he was on a trip to put to death Christians, or to at least put Christians in prison, as he was on his way to the city of Damascus, that while he was on the road to that city, that he had an experience with God. This is what happened to him. That the one who he previously was convinced was dead, he discovered was actually alive. And the one that he previously concluded was spending an eternity in shame and lowliness, because that's what the Jews believed would occur to a person that was crucified, was actually, the one he thought would be shamed and lowly, was actually the exalted one, who was brighter than the noonday sun, he said. The one who he previously believed was a charlatan and a fraud, he came to discover in that moment was actually the Lord of all eternity and that he was God's Messiah. And from that moment in time, the entire direction of Paul's life had changed. This is who I was. This is what happened to me. And going forth, the entirety of Paul's life was changed. The mission of his life was changed. His mission had been to preserve the foundation of Judaism and to put an end to anything else that might threaten that, particularly the Christian church. That had been his mission. But his mission from that time forward was to tell anyone that would listen, and a number of people that didn't want to listen, of the hope that was found in Jesus Christ, and specifically to tell that hope to the Gentile people. If you look at verse 16 of our passage, Acts chapter 26 He said that the voice of the Lord spoke to him and said, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So I want you to go and tell people what you've already seen, and he clues Paul in. Paul's going to see a whole lot more than that. He goes on from there, and he tells Paul that through his preaching, that the spiritual eyes of the Gentiles were going to be open, and that they would be turned from darkness 
to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. That was God's commissioning to the apostle. This is who I was and this is what happened to me. And now as we turn to verse 19, where we're going to pick up today, we're going to take notice that Paul transitions one more time, a final time in his story, to tell how his life has been different since his conversion. And if you were creating an outline of your story, you wanted to sit down, you wanted to think it through, maybe you wanted to write it out on a computer or in a journal or something, those would be the three components of your story. This is who I was, this is what happened to me, this is how my life is now different and has ever been different as a result of coming into contact with Jesus Christ. This is who I have become, we might say. And so let's read, starting in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. And to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Notice how Paul begins there. In verse 19, he said, And so, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So, given the experience that Paul just described, I was moving along there on the road to Damascus. People talk about him being on a horse. It doesn't say that. But I was riding along there, say, on this horse to Damascus, and suddenly I was knocked down to the ground by this bright, bright shining light, and the light spoke to me. What is the logical response to that? to do what the light told him to do, or the person that was in that light told him to do. And that's what Paul's saying. Logically, that's what I did. It's very rational that I would obey. The Jewish officials were demanding that Paul stop doing what he was doing, and when he wouldn't, they sought to kill him as a result. But Paul, however, had encountered the risen Lord, and he had to obey. He could either obey those Jewish officials, or he could obey the risen Lord. Paul chose the latter, to obey the Lord. It was relatively early in Jesus' ministry when he spelled out to his followers very clearly what it would mean to follow him. Jesus said this, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Paul understood that if Jesus was going to be his Lord, he would have to obey Jesus. Just before Jesus said that, he said this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad, tree, a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The point being there, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And Paul understood that one of the first marks of conversion in our lives is that we obey the Lord and his commands upon our lives. And so for a person to claim that Jesus is their Lord and then for them to not do what he says, I think that that rightly calls into the question the veracity of their claim. Wouldn't you agree? For a person to say that they were a follower of Christ and yet the fruit that is produced in their lives look, looks nothing like Christ begs one to ask the question of themselves, 
am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Because the evidence certainly doesn't give the indication that they are. And so Paul begins then this final section by talking about his need to be obedient to the command of Christ. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The second thing that Paul points out is a little bit further down. It's in verse 20. And there he talks about how his life is different after encountering the Lord. And he talks about his ever-increasing, the ever-increasing scope of his ministry. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, I was not disobedient to the vision, O King Agrippa, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Notice that. He had been going to Damascus to arrest people for being believers in Jesus Christ, but here, now when he gets to Damascus, he explained to people how to become believers in Jesus Christ. His life was changed. His mission was changed. His purpose was changed. But notice how the scope of his ministry increases. He begins by telling those people in Damascus. Then he has the opportunity to tell some more people, greater number of people in Jerusalem. And then eventually more and more people throughout the world. As Paul grew, the scope of his ministry grew. But we see here right from the start what Paul did, Paul was faithful in the little things. So Paul didn't look at his life and say, well, I'm this great rabbi. My story, we could write books and you know, do documentaries on me. Everyone's going to be drawn to me, and I only speak to a minimum of this many people. That's not how Paul started his ministry. Paul began his ministry by talking to a few people in a home. And then a few more people and a few more people. And God grew his ministry as Paul was first faithful in the little things. Thirdly, notice this. Notice what Paul tells Agrippa that he shared with those folks. It's about halfway through verse 20. He says that he told them that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And so whether Paul was talking to Jews in Jerusalem, or Gentiles in Caesarea, or Jewish people in Damascus, or Gentile people in Damascus, no matter who Paul was speaking to, Paul preached one message, and that was that his listeners needed to repent and to turn to God. Now, repenting and turning to God is actually the same thing, or it's, it's at the very least two things that go hand in hand with one another because a person can't really turn to God unless they repent and their subsequent actions are going to confirm whether they truly have repented. That's why Paul, notice how, what he adds there at the end of verse 20 uh, where he says, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And so just like the change in Paul's heart was evidenced by the change of his deeds, here too now Paul was calling his listeners to such a change in their lives as well. And so what's repentance? Well, repentance means to turn around. It means to turn from sin and to go in another direction. That's the idea when Paul says, repent and turn to God. And so the proof, therefore, of genuine repentance is always going to be evidenced by a person's subsequent life. Now please, I do want to be very, very clear. Nowhere does the scripture teach that a person is saved by their deeds? Or not even saved, if you will, by their deeds. 
So let me be clear on that. But what it does teach is this, that a person's deeds will evidence the fact that they have been saved. And so I said it a moment ago, and I'll say it here now. This morning, I want to encourage each of us that are gathered to consider the nature of our conversion. Is there evidence of the change that we profess that God has done in our lives? Is there evidence of that? Paul wrote these words in another place. He said this. He said to his listeners, his readers, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He said, test yourselves in this. And so as you look at your life, is there evidence that Jesus Christ has come in and has changed your heart and changed the direction that you've gone? Have you repented and turned away from your sin and to the Lord? Going back to verse 21, Paul's words before Agrippa, he said, For this reason the Jews, they seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. This is the reason that the Jews hate Paul. This is the reason that the Jews tried to kill Paul, he says, because I told them about my ministry to the Gentiles. You remember that back in chapter 22, that everything was humming along until Paul mentioned the word Gentiles. The next verse of that chapter, I forget which verse it is, but the next verse says, and at that word, the people freaked, and they began to pull Paul and wanted to kill Paul. But Paul declared to people everywhere their need to repent and get right with God. And he makes it clear that it wasn't because he was some kind of political revolutionary that the Jews turned him over to Festus and Agrippa. He makes it clear that it was because he preached a gospel message, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentile people. The Jews seized him and they tried to kill him because he was preaching a message of hope and forgiveness not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And for many Jews, that was just unacceptable, something they couldn't tolerate. And so they tried to kill him. Paul adds in verse 22, he says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. I find this verse very, very interesting. Paul says there, he begins there, he said, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. Now he says that as he's standing in chains in a lower section of this gathering place before all of these officials and all of these key Roman people that are looking down on him as he's possibly going to be sent to his death because of the things that he was involved with. And yet, in all of that, he says this, I have had the help that comes from God. So after having been imprisoned for over two years, he is still able to declare that through it all, God has been helping me. I find that interesting, because I think our tendency is to think that God's help in Paul's life could have only come in the form of getting him out of jail getting him out of his problem, that would have been evidence that God has been helping me. But that's not what Paul says. Even in the midst of it, Paul says, I can see the hand of God helping me in each of these things. Because Paul saw God's help in sustaining him, even in the midst of his time in prison. I think this is a really important thing that we see about the Apostle Paul. 
that we need to see develop in our own hearts and in our own thinking, our own mindset as well, that we can see the helping hand of God, not just in delivering us from our hardships, but delivering us through those hardships. And I think that changes everything in our lives because we know that the Lord is with us. It's not like the Lord is outside and going to pull us out to him. He's right there in the midst of it with us. And Paul saw God's helping hand there. He was absolutely certain that God was helping him, but perhaps not in the way that most of us would expect. And so the Lord was empowering him in the midst of his difficulties. And God will do the same thing with you. You're no different than the Apostle Paul. You're no different than those men that were there in the fiery furnace. You're no different than Daniel as he was there with the hungry lions. You're no different than the people that we see in the scripture that God is with them even in the midst of their trials. He'll be there in the midst of our trials as well. Ours is to trust him. Ours is to rely upon him even as Paul was doing here. Notice we also see that Paul, he did what he, what he did with a pure conscience. He did what he did with confidence. He says here, I preached this message. I've gone to where I needed to go. I've said what I was told to say. He said, and I stand here today saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul, he could stand before this large crowd filled with all these great officials and do what he did because he knew that it wasn't his message that he was declaring to those folks. So Paul isn't sitting there trying to convince them with the keenness of his intellect or persuade them with his rhetorical skills. What Paul was doing was presenting to them the truth of God's word as it had been revealed to and through his holy prophets. Paul believed God's word and he unashamedly presented God's word to those he came in contact with, whether they be the highest officials of society or the lowest individuals of society. He presented God's word to them, and he left the rest of that to God. God, I planted the seed. You're going to have to bring about the increase. And what was the message? The message of Moses, the message of the prophets. Verse 23 tells us that the Christ must suffer. Remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, it was just after his resurrection, early in the morning, nobody really was aware that he had risen from the dead. And he's walking with this group of disciples, and they're kind of down, they're kind of dejected. He says to them, kind of playing along, it seems, with them, you know, what are you guys all so down about? And they kind of snap at him, what are you, the only guy in Jerusalem doesn't know what happened? He says, no, tell me. And they, they, he, they tell him, well, they, we had hoped he was the Christ, but they killed him. And Jesus began to explain to them from the scriptures why the Christ must suffer. That's what the scripture taught. That's what Paul is teaching here. Again, the cross of Christ was no accident. The cross of Christ was in the mind of God before the garden. The cross of Christ is explained to us uh, or in, uh, prophesied to us throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Imagine having that study on CD or tape or MP3 of Jesus with those disciples. How, how fulfilling that would be for us to see all throughout the Old Testament of it pointing to Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Paul says he's been doing. I've been uh, preaching the message of Moses and the prophets that the Christ must suffer, that he must rise again, that we can proclaim light both to our people, the Jewish people, and to the Gentiles. That was God's plan from the beginning. 
Now, I imagine Paul had a few more things to say, but notice verse 14, he's interrupted. He's interrupted by Governor Festus. Again, he was addressing Agrippa, but Governor Festus is sitting up there as well. Governor Festus interjects here, verse 24 begins that. He says, now, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Has everybody been told by family members they're crazy? Typically, it's when they're in the kitchen and you're still in the other room and you come walking in and they're talking about you at the sink, calling you crazy. Well, anyway, they said it to, I don't know if it's happened to you, but they said it to Paul here. Your much learning is driving you crazy. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. Now, that's Agrippa. Agrippa, you know about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for these things have not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul doesn't even give him a chance to answer. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I'm going to come back to that verse. And Paul said, well, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also to all who hear me this day uh, might become such as I am, except for these chains. All right, let's go back and look at that a little bit. So please remember this about Festus. He was a Roman pagan, not a Jewish person. I've mentioned to you, historically, we know at best he was a secular Roman pagan which means he had a general idea, he celebrated you know, the big holidays and things like that. But religion in and of itself just was not that important to Festus. And yet here in front of him, however, was Paul, who was talking about a literal bodily resurrection that happened to this figure in history, and that because it did, that it made all the difference in Paul's life and in the lives of the people that Paul had uh, interaction with that had met the Lord as well. Festus cries out what a lot of people might cry out. Paul, you're crazy. Paul, you're talking about seeing a bright light. You're talking about voices from heaven. You're talking about the dead coming back to life and giving men that were blind the ability to see. Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? To someone that doesn't understand. He says, Paul... You're much learning. It was clear Paul was a well-educated individual, even just by the way he spoke and the way he strung sentences together. It was clear that he was a learned individual. He says, Paul, your much learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul, very, very quick to respond. Now remember, this is the Roman governor. This is the guy that ultimately has a key power over Paul's life. And he says, no, I'm not out of my mind. Let's say it another way. No, you're wrong. Yikes. All right, a little confrontation. It's kind of fun here. Festus thought Paul was being irrational, illogical, out of his mind and crazy. Paul says, no, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. Everything I've said makes sense. He was respectful to the governor as far as it seems, but he wasn't going to let the governor shut him down. And he wasn't going to be dissuaded because the governor didn't agree. Now he looks away from the governor, he turns back to Agrippa, and he says, For the king knows about these things, verse 26. And to you, him I speak boldly. He says, I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for these things have not been done 
in a corner. So remember, Festus had relatively recently just come to Jerusalem from Rome. Uh, not Jerusalem, uh, Judea, uh, from Rome. Hadn't been in you know, uh, Israel or the area of Israel for a very, very long time. He got there, he went to Jerusalem. It seems as he's trying to build relationships with the Jewish people, understand the Jewish people. Festus doesn't have much knowledge of the Jewish people. Agrippa does. Agrippa was one of those that had been granted authority in that region of the world, specifically over the temple area. And so he had a lot of interactions with the Jewish people and a lot of interactions with the Jewish leaders. And so Paul can say to him, look, I, I know you're very familiar with these things that I have been talking about. I know none of these things, they didn't happen in some corner that you would have missed it. He said to Agrippa, look, I know that you know about these things. And it's to that knowledge that Paul appeals when he, uh, he brings these things up. He says they were not done in a corner. And then he challenges Agrippa. And this is what I've been saying over the last few weeks where you have to ask yourself, who's on trial? Is Paul the one on trial or is it Agrippa? Is it Festus? Is it Bernice? Is it any of these other officials that had gathered there? Because Paul turns to them and he says specifically to Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I'm not even going to give you a chance to answer. I know that you believe the prophets, he says to him. Paul brought the challenge directly to Agrippa. Again, more on trial than Paul. And he does this because Paul knew something very, very important. I think a very important thing for many American people, maybe other people in the world as well, but I don't know other people in the world as well. I know American people. And many people in America, particularly 10, 15, 20 years ago and, and before that, grew up with a, a general idea of the Christian faith. They learned basic ideas and things. What religion are you? Christian, they would say. Oh, yeah, tell me about your experience. Huh? What are you talking about? Tell me how Jesus Christ is impacting your life today. Who are you? I don't know what you're talking about. They don't understand. So they have a basic head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. And what Paul knew here is that it's not enough to believe these things with our head. That they have, a, have to travel down into our hearts. Agrippa believed much of these things Paul was talking about with his head, but not in his heart. And it's not enough to merely acknowledge some intellectual truths about the Christian faith. We must make the decision as to what we're going to do with that truth. And so Paul began by asking Agrippa if he believed the prophets. He does that because Paul knew that if he acknowledged that he did believe the prophets, and he truly believed the prophets, if he continued to follow that path, the prophets would bring him to Christ. Logically, rationally, and looking to connect uh, what Agrippa already believed, Paul poses his question to him. He challenges Agrippa. Follow the evidence where it leads, Agrippa. Make a decision regarding what to do with that evidence. Listen, there are only two proper responses to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only two proper responses. It is to receive it or it is to reject it. Indifference is not a viable option. It's not an option that the scripture presents to us. Paul calls for Agrippa to make a decision. One or the other, Agrippa. No more walking this uh, tightrope here. Now, Agrippa responds. Notice, Paul lays it right out there. So what do you say, Agrippa? What are you going to do? 
Agrippa responds by stomping on the brakes, slamming the brakes down. He says in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, if you're reading the King James Version, if you're reading the New King James Version, then you know that uh, it states it slightly differently. And that pretty much changes what it seems to be Agrippa is saying. So the King James and New King James tradition feel that the king was actually brought to the threshold of making a decision for Christ. Paul, in such a short time, you would convert me. That sounds wonderful. Others, other versions, ESV in particular, that I'm using today, thinks that Agrippa was being sarcastic, that he was saying something like this, do you really think that just with a little persuasion you could make me a Christian? That's very different, isn't it? Now, the reason why there's a difference between different versions, translations, is this, because in the original it reads basically like this, in a little you persuade me. That's what it says. Now, does that mean just a little more and Paul, you got me? Or you think just a little talk you can get me? We don't really know. And that's why there's sort of this back and forth. Here's what we do know. From history, Agrippa never responded to Jesus Christ. He never surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. One reason or another, something kept him back from following the evidence of the Old Testament prophets where they led to the cross of Jesus Christ. In reality, I think it was probably someone kept him back. Remember, to his right was Bernice, his sister-slash-wife, whom he was in relationship with. We know from history that Bernice was, uh, as she's been described, a sinful, immoral companion of Agrippa. And I have to imagine Agrippa probably, rightly, realized that if he became a follower of Christ, it meant he risked losing her. Because remember, Paul's message was repent, turn from your sin, and turn to God. And Agrippa probably rightly realized that if he had turned to Christ, that he very much ran the risk of losing Bernice, something it seems he wasn't willing to do. There was another person sitting next to Agrippa, and that was Governor Festus, and I think he likely influenced Agrippa's decision as well. Festus had already publicly declared that he thought Paul was crazy. What might he think of Agrippa if Agrippa gave in to the message of the Apostle Paul? And perhaps that was something he didn't want to risk. I don't want people thinking I'm crazy. Plus, there was a large crowd of non-believers. And so something, his sin, nature, no doubt, but also someone or some ones kept Agrippa from following the evidence where it led. We're not told exactly what it was that kept him from fully embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but if history is to believe, he never did. Maybe he even thought, look, I'm up here on a throne Paul is down there in front of all of us in chains. Why would I want to risk losing all of this for that? Well, whatever the reason was, history indicates he never responded. He had come close to responding. But sadly, that only magnifies the sadness of having rejected the message of Christ. Remember, you can only receive or reject Almost becoming a Christian means that this person almost had eternal life and that they almost were delivered from the judgment of hell. 
but of course almost isn't enough. And so listen, I exhort each of us here, if you're here and you're considering these things that I've been saying here, maybe you're wrestling a little bit with what you might have to give up in order to become a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just ask you this. Is that thing worth it? Is that person worth it? Is there anything worth losing your soul over? Kyle read this earlier. Jesus asked this question. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? And what can a person give in exchange for their soul? Agrippa said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. To which Paul responds, you see Paul's heart. What did Paul want more than anything in his life? He, it comes out of him right here. He says, would to God, not only you, but everyone in the sound of my voice right now. That was Paul's heart. You see, Paul could have stopped doing what he was doing. Gotten released from prison, gone and live a comfortable life somewhere. But Paul's heart was for the lost. He said, oh, would to God that you would become a believer. And not just you, everyone that is hearing my voice right now. And so whether Agrippa was speaking in sincerity or he was being sarcastic when he said what he said in that previous verse there, notice how Paul answers with deadly earnestness. Just as I think the scripture speaks with the same earnestness toward every one of us that is hearing this message today. The scripture says today, if you hear God's voice, listen, respond, respond to the message of life as presented in his word, repent and turn to the Lord. We'll conclude with this verse 30. It says, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. Remember, the king is Agrippa. Paul had just challenged Agrippa here. It seems that direct challenge hit a little too close to home for Agrippa. You know what, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Or put on some music so I can deaden the thoughts that I have. I can listen to something else. I can get busy with something else, engage with something else. I won't have to think about this anymore and it will pass. It says, it seems the direct challenge got a little bit too close to home for Agrippa, a little bit too close to home for Festus, for Bernice, for all the others on the platform. And so they quickly put an end to this stuff here. They got up and they left. Notice as they left, however, they, they kind of murmured or mumbled amongst themselves. Somehow Luke picks this up here. In verse 31, they say, they begin, that's the first time, they say two things to one another. The first is verse 31. They said, you know what, this guy hasn't done anything worthy, according to Roman law, of prison. I'll read it to you. It says, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. The second thing is in verse 32, and they said, man, that's too bad. Had he not appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go right now. But Paul did appeal to the Caesar. And so to the Caesar, Paul was going to go. Now that begs the question for me, was it wrong for Paul to appeal to Caesar? Had Paul not appealed to Caesar, he could be going home right now, but he relied upon that worldly institution of appealing to Caesar. Was that Paul's flesh? Should Paul not have done that particular thing? And there are some that suggest that it was, and that Paul got himself into this hot water you know, by relying on the wrong things. I don't think it was wrong for him to exercise his rights as he did, 
But I'll say this, whether it was or wasn't, it does become evident as we continue our study that either way that God was in it and that God was going to use it to present Paul with the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the emperor of the Roman Empire, which we'll look at next week when we come back together. So make sure you come back for the exciting conclusion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a lot of the things that we've considered today, Lord. I thank you for Paul and his confidence and his boldness in the midst of all of these great officials, officials with the power really to end his life in a moment. And Lord, very few of us, if any of us, are ever going to find ourselves in a circumstance like that with such dire consequences. But Lord, we do want to be a people that are bold. We, we do want to be a people that have a confidence in the word of God. Lord, we, we do want to be a people that are assured of what you have done in our lives, where you have taken us from and what you have brought us unto. And that for the, the years that we have been in the Lord, we've been seeking to honor you, walk with you. We've repented and we've turned to God. And we've been seeking to see deeds, uh, fruit of that repentance in our lives. So that with a good conscience, we can make the faith known to others. But I pray that you would stir us today. And Lord, maybe some of us sitting here today are wrestling with you whether we're a Christian or we're not a Christian. You've been putting your finger on an area of our lives, Lord. For the unbelievers, you've been calling them to yourself, to the place of faith. And they've been ignoring it and putting it off. For the believer, maybe there's an area of sin in our lives, that, an area of compromise that you've been putting your finger on. But I pray today would be the day, big thing or little thing, that every one of us in this room would respond to your leading. Bless your church, I ask, Lord.